Right. So here, I'm not sure if I'm going to get a chance to do the whole Jeroboam um, timeline here from Jeroboam and Abijam forward, but we're going to give it a try. Uh, and as we move along, if you will just remind me to move over to the to the um, to the timeline and try to fill it in as we go, that'll be helpful to you all. It, it makes it, it really challenging for those who are listening because they can't see what I'm writing and it's really hard sometimes to totally describe it, but we'll do our best. And I do think that, that one of the important things is to just check to make sure you get the order of things. You know, what happened first and then second and then third and then you can figure it out. What's, what's amazing is all the dating that's given to us in the Word of God that really does help you. If you look at the years when a certain person was reigning as your kind of your plumb line and it gives you a marker point and you go, okay, it's in his third year or in someone else's 18th year, then it helps you to kind of know where on that timeline to put it. And in that order and in that way, you can, if you're paying attention to marking all those uh, references of time, you will get the right sequential order, I think, in the end. Even if you miss a little bit here and there, you're going to get the general picture down. Um, sometimes, for me, what I find with, with the timelines is that it often, often it will explain things better. You know, once you see it, and same things with working with your maps. When you do your, your map drawing and you see, for instance, when we looked at one of the kings and it shows Asa making an alliance at one point, did any of you do your map work to see who he was making alliances with and where? Okay, because we're going to talk about that when we get to that particular chapter because I do think if you did your map work and took your time, you're going to find that it that there, there is some, at least some measure of explanation as to why he did what he did. And it, and it kind of makes um, better sense to you when you see it visually. Otherwise, you're just reading a bunch of names that don't make any point of reference to you at all. You know, you don't know who they, where they are or where they're located or why that's a significant point. All right, so let us get started now. We are going to do very, very quickly a review on our, do we have any new students in here this morning? None. Yay. Okay. Not that that's, <laughs> I shouldn't say it that way. I didn't mean that. <laughs> Pardon? Okay. We're expecting one, but she's not here. Okay. Well, for the sake of even one, we would have taken a, a lot more time on this, but since the one is not here today, um, we're going to just move kind of beyond that. We know because, you know, at the very beginning of your week's, um, lesson this week. She wanted, for those who had not been a, a part of the last session, series one, she wanted you to go back and kind of look. We know what the context is. We've studied Solomon. On the whole, we see Solomon's in chapters one to nine of the Chronicles record. And big picture about Solomon, what did you learn about Solomon? I know. He, he really, I don't know that I'd quite put it that harshly. However, he was a bad boy. <laughs> He really was. I mean, with them. So, I've talked with so many people about this since we've done this. What do you see is the amazing truth about a man who God gave a gift of wisdom to the measure of wisdom that he was given. He, there you go. He used his wisdom for his own purposes and not for the purposes 
of God. Now, the conclusion to that then is what happened to God's kingdom because of this? In the end, there was punishment, wasn't there? There was judicial measures taken by God to firmly, with a firm hand, let Israel know this is not the way my leaders are going to be allowed to lead and, and get away with it, basically. You, you can do that, but you're going to suffer consequences. And so the consequences by God's hand was what happened to Israel's 12 tribes. Ten and two. Ten were removed from Judah, which was the throne of God, which was the, the seat of where God's worship system would be. And he removed ten of them, gave them into the hand of Jeroboam, who is the first one on our timeline here. And the other two then remained, or no, two of them remained with Jeroboam, sorry. No, no. Rehoboam. I, I see those names are too close. We're going to keep having this problem, aren't we? Okay, Rehoboam retained two with Judah. Jeroboam received then ten. And the interesting thing in that whole picture uh, to me was how God went about actually fulfilling that because Rehoboam seems to really be truly a, a tool in the hand of God in that unfolding, didn't he? What, what did you see uh, in that storyline? Right, okay. So for, at first, Rehoboam didn't listen to God and to wisdom and to the wise leaders, right, for counsel. And so then he makes a bad choice. He follows the, the bad wisdom of the younger men. But then the very next part of the storyline, what does Rehoboam do? When the prophet comes to him and tells him, no, 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 do not go against your, your fellow brothers, then he listened. And then the, the, the interesting thing is that little statement in there, it says, and this was at, at, at the hand of God, that this was God doing this. So interesting is that God really had, had although freedom of will is not interfered with, but interesting that God's spirit had not led him or guided him to make the right choice the first time, but he did guide him to make the right choice the second time. And he did that in order that God's uh, word would be fulfilled that he spoke concerning uh, Solomon and the consequence of Solomon not leading his people well. Now, have we seen a repeated pattern with each of the kings we've looked at regarding um, how they lead the people and how God responds? What are you seeing going on? Most of them, on the whole, keep doing evil, okay? And because they keep doing evil, then it seems like what, what happens? Okay, okay, now, when you're, when you're seeing records of things like these wars and disturbances and, and in, in, infighting, the bickering going on between these leaders, what, is, um, what does all of this have to do with God's kingdom? What is the record for, anyway? Why is God writing this? What is the chronicles for? What are the records of the kings all about? Okay, number one, it shows us the sovereignty of God over his, 
his chosen nation, the one that he birthed, that he rose up, that he established, right, and that he is sovereignly watching over. No matter what man does, God is still watching over his nation. That's a great truth, a very higher level of of learning that we've really kind of grabbed and hold up on that, okay? I just have one question. Okay. Uh, it's to let us know that what the people encounter is a direct response to their obedience. Wow. Okay, so that Israel's, there's a direct response or a cause and effect between our relationship with God what we and what we do. And so can we take that then to our personal lives today, or is that only retained for Israel and that nation at that time? It works today, too. Would you? So are there things that you think are going on in America in particular? Not that we're equal in any way to Israel, the nation, but as a people, as a nation, are there things that you see going on in America that you can see a cause and effect that seems to be going on in a spiritual realm for us today. Well, tell me what you tell me what you think on that. What, how do you see God working or not working, or how do you see Him still being sovereign in the, in all that's going on? Mm-hmm. Right. So, let's just take the sexual revolution and free love or da-da-da. And with that, the breakdown of family relationships, abortion, disease. Yes. Very good point, Susan. So, so on the one hand, we can say that as a nation, we can say, well, we refuse to follow the laws of God regarding certain moral principles, and we want to live our lives in the way that we want to live them. But then as a nation, the consequence is you see moral degeneration, you see health degeneration, you see family breaking down, and, and you see a bigger picture, and that is people on the whole, would you say people are drawing closer to God or further from God? Are there more people coming into faith or are there less people coming into faith? Who's having the bigger influence in our nation today right now? Who seems to at least be having the bigger? It seems like the one, you know, uh, bad company corrupts good morals does seem to be a principle that still applies in our world. I think about when God gave the commandment uh, back in the uh, in the Genesis record where he shows us in Genesis 6, which we looked at this week. We see that God had apparently had initiated an understanding with his people early on that they were to um, marry within faith, that those who loved God and were faithful to God were to marry those who loved God and were faithful to God. But in Genesis 6, what do we see uh, the, the sons of men doing? Marrying whomever they wanted, the daughters of men. And so those men, in the, the, the phrase that's put in there, it just says the unbeliever, basically. They married anyone they wanted. It shows an act of defiance. And in the consequence of that, then what happened? All, the, all kinds of sin. Okay, so let's start by talking first a little bit about the heart because I do think that's an important subject. I definitely want to get on the board today a little bit about it anyway. Did anybody do a word study on the word heart, by the way? You, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Celeste. <laughs> 
brilliant. <laughs> you know, well, I just thought, I just know that, that when she gave you basically less than five, the entire day's homework was on the heart, right? And all those cross-references. So to me, the natural thing would be to say, you know, before I even begin really looking even at cross-references, I might should look at God's definition of it. She started us in a Second Chronicles passage, which was one of our, our references where it says in Second Chronicles 69, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So that's the verse. And, and then, by the way, it goes on to say, basically, that those that don't, then he doesn't wholly support them. As a matter of fact, he comes against them, right? And that's the, the reality that we're seeing over and over in these records that God has given to us. And, and one point I just want to make is, remember, the writing of these, of these records in Chronicles and in Kings are written during the days and beyond of their Babylonian captivity. And the record is written so that when they return to the land, they will not fall back into the same pattern. However, does man tend to fall back into the same pattern? So when you read that Genesis account, don't ever say to yourself, that could never be me. I would never do that. Because the only thing that keeps a man from going that wayward route is what? God himself, having relationship with God, having a heart that's wholly committed to the Lord, which is one of the repeated things that we keep seeing in these records. Okay, so the, the word there in uh, 2 Chronicles 16.9 is, is number 3824. I'm going to put this, it's the, the heart. And we need to define what, he, what it's speaking of about the heart there in general, 3824. And it's really interesting because there's a lot of possibilities for application in this. And when you get a word that's defined very, very broadly, what does that tell you then when you go into any one verse and read about it and see that word? What must you do then? You have to look at the context to try to discern which point is being brought out or whether maybe it's a generality statement and it might mean all of it. It might encompass all of it. Okay, so no one else here did word study? Oh, okay. I am, so, I am so disappointed in all of you. <laughs> okay, so let, let me give it to you. It's number 38. I know. No. <laughs> okay, you've had your, your disciplining for the morning. This was not a prophet word, by however. The, this was not for, the Lord speaketh this not. It was just Katie. Okay, 3824 is your number, Strong's. And it really has about four or five things. And this is where they define it first and foremost in a very broad way. They say inner man, mind, will, heart, soul, and understanding. So let me write all those words down up here for you. Okay, the inner man, mind, will, heart, I guess, I don't know if that, if that particular point is just talking about the physical heart or, or something else, but then it says soul and understanding. And I can tell you that what I ended up doing, though, when I looked at all the definitions, the one that meant the physical heart, the biological body part, I eliminated. Why would I do that? 
Because is, does the biological body part have anything at all to do with relationship with God? No. <laughs> Except that you have to have a beating heart to be a human being and alive. Other than that, that is not the essence of the truth. That is not the point to the statement about your heart being wholly committed to the Lord. So with that put, put aside, and now we understand we're going to eliminate that one, the rest of these, this is uh, some of the possibilities. I'm going to run through them very fast. Uh, the inner part, midst, midst of things, heart of man, soul, heart of man, mind, knowledge, thinking, reflection, memory, inclination, resolution, determination of will. I liked that one. Uh, conscience. I like that one too. The heart of moral character as the seat of appetites, as the seat of emotions and passions, and as the seat of courage. I thought that was cool, too, because remember, we saw the word courage, right, in one of the statements where it said that when the prophet spoke to him concerning uh, the, the, basically the, the covenant of the, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law, that then, the, then Asa did what? He took courage. And in taking courage, then what did he do? He, that's exactly right. He, he took the steps necessary to actually act on that which his heart had stirred him to do. So he took courage and did it. thought that was really cool. Okay, so then I went from, this was in the, in the Strong's. Then I went to the next one, which is the uh, Dictionary of Biblical Language, Languages with s Semantic Domains. <laughs> I have no idea what always that really means. Oh, kind of I do, but not really. Anyway, so this one here in the Dictionary of Biblical Languages, it says, again, heart, mind, soul, spirit, self. Then it goes on to explain it a little bit, and I really like the way it did it. The source of life of the inner person in various aspects, with focus on feelings, thoughts, volition, and other areas of inner life. Very good, huh? Isn't that kind of cool? And the reason I really wanted to develop this, it might sound like I'm just giving you stuff that like, yeah, 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 we know that. But really, when you do these word studies and you and you stop and you ponder on it in reflection to where it says, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Then you stop and you say, that means my vo the volition of my will. That means my inner thoughts. It means my, the knowledge that I have in there and the way that I weigh things out and make determinations. It's it's um, my passions, it's my commitment, it's my courage, it's my... So you take all these various aspects of how this thing can be defined out and carried out, and you say, it's all of that that God wants to wholly support. If I am wholly committed in my heart to him, he wants to strongly support me. He wants to strongly support you. Isn't that an... Ex Really, that's right there. That's enough for a whole lesson in my thought. Okay, let me put this up here. And I'm just going to put the last part of it. That has to do with, uh, with focus on feeling. Okay, so it takes care of your emotions. Thoughts, that's your intelligence or your, or your reasoning. Volition. What is that? Your will uh, and other areas of inner life.
All right. And then it goes on and it talks about, that was the first part of the Dictionary of Biblical Languages. They had something like 13 possibilities of choices, and I picked out four of them that I felt uh, were specific. Some of the others went into like almost like contrast. It could be the opposite is this, or the struggle could be that. So here, the, the one of them was the conscience, the psychological faculty to distinguish right and wrong. So if your faculty of reasoning things through and distinguishing between right and wrong is wholly committed to God, then God will strongly support you. And he looks for those that will have that toward him. That is, that is really profound if you consider the fact that, that, well, let me just ask it this way. Let me, let me rephrase it the question, as a question instead of a statement. What does Scripture teach us about how we get to a place where we can distinguish right from wrong? Okay. Right. Okay. The only way to have a relationship with God is to be in his word. So knowing his law then is one of the requirements. So what comes first, the horse or the cart, right, kind of in this thing? We know that salvation, if we're going to move this into the quality of salvation for us, that salvation is by grace, and God is the one that initiates that, okay? With, with, and that's true. And the, in the fact that God has sovereignly, from before the foundation of the earth, made a plan that man could search for him and find him, right? Ephesians 1 teaches us that, that he, he, he uh, that, that scripture, sometimes people use it as predestination, and we've been having some conversations on that. But, but that's not talking about you are predestined to salvation, but that there's a predestined plan. And what is the plan? Jesus, finding Jesus, believing God in Jesus. But in there, then, God has created humanity with a heart and ability individually, then, to make decisions. Have we seen in the, the prophets and the kings so far, have we seen that God ever intervenes and, and removes a free will of anyone? No, we don't. We, we do see God allowing or not allowing in circumstances, but we never see the, in the broader spectrum of a person's life where God says, you are, are basically destined for hell and I'm, you know, there's no opportunity for you to ever come into faith. It is a personal, individual decision that a person must make. They are, by God's design, introduced to God, right? How are the ways that God introduces himself to us and has throughout all generations? Okay, through his word. Okay, do you remember, Margaret, where it talks about that even through nature that God shows us that he is God and that he is creator? In Romans chapter 1. Okay, very good. So that even through the creation itself, God has revealed himself. He's, and, he sh and he reveals us through his prophetic utterances through the prophets and through the written word. And he reveals us also through, um, as we even just examine the creation itself, but also the, the supernatural things that he's done. When Jesus appeared, how did he present God to, to us? Hmm? 
okay, that he came as man in physical, in physical flesh, but he did that in fulfillment to a word of prophecy concerning him, that he would come, and then he did come. And then when he came, what were the things that he did to prove to us that he was God? signs and wonders and miracles, right? So God, so God, when he's working with our heart, he taps into all areas, all possibilities of, of ways to reach our hearts. He doesn't just expect us, each, each of us, to have the same aptitude or the same um, connection, basically, to God uh, in the beginning, because we're different in our personalities, and we're different in our, in our strengths, right? But God will reach down into the world, and he says his eyes go to and fro about the earth, seeking those whom he may fully support. He desires to draw you. There's another one in Timothy that says that he desires that none perish, no, not one. So he does seek out our affections toward him. But one of the ways that we can then reach back to him, the way that we are expected to, as a matter of fact, because we looked at some passages that said, what is it that God expects of us? So you guys go. Let's look at those cross-references in day five. You looked in, and let's, let's look on the whole about what you learned about the heart from those. In Genesis 6, in Deuteronomy 10 and 30, we looked in Mark, in uh, Mark 12 and First Chronicles 28, there were, there were lots of them. What are some of the things that you learned about the heart? <laughs> the heart, by nature, is, it says, continually evil. Continually doing evil, right? Would you say the kings and prophets have pretty much shown that to us as well? Yeah. All right, so that one was in the Genesis 6 account. The wickedness of man is great, it says. Uh -huh. I also want to add to that. I thought this was interesting, just the wording. The intent of man's heart is evil from youth. However, it doesn't say from birth. And okay. That was something that hit me yesterday really profoundly, that it's not from birth, but from youth. Somewhere there's a... Very cool. And that actually comes into play then when we look at what God did concerning Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, when he, his life was taken as a young child. And God said he examined his heart and he found in him what? Something, you know, in that other, the other one, the other Abijah. So I found in him something good. And so in his, in his case, then God allowed him to have an honorable uh, funeral and a remembrance was done for him and they all mourned for him, which was a, appropriate according to the custom and tradition of the Jews of that day, which showed that God was, was basically uh, acknowledging him and giving him um, re, uh, fully supporting him. There you go, in a, in a kind of different kind of way that most people don't consider support but God was honoring this young boy's life and he said it's because he saw in him what something good but not just something good something what good towards who towards the Lord towards God so it was there was something in him good towards the Lord towards the Lord okay so the intent of man from youth from youth is evil so that's a good point to make. I like that, Lisa, that, that distinguishes the fact that you're not born that way. Now, what, one of the things that we have talked about in this class many times is the judicial 
placement that we are born into, being in Adam or in Christ. But when, even though you're born in Adam, judicially you're already judged guilty, but that doesn't mean you're born a sinner. It means you were born, and at some point by the time you get to a place of accountability or an age of accountability, then you make a decision to either obey or to disobey. But it, how, how long does it take for a child to pretty much exert his will and say to mommy, no, <laughs> about 18 months, if not sooner, right? Maybe 12 or 13 if they're an early talker. That's right, and it does depend on the child. That's right. But almost, how many of you know a three- or a four-year-old that have not by that point exerted some kind of will? Okay, but now that's not speaking in general about their understanding about God. However, there's a place then with the youth as they're growing, they, they come to uh, know about God and, and become familiar with who Jesus is and what Jesus wants for, from us or for us. And then at that point, then comes that, quote, age of accountability that we are actually speaking about. But you can see where it says the intent of man's heart, the intent, is a, there is a a aggression or a rebellion within us that's a, almost by nature, right, for every one of us, which explains why God can very clearly say with, without any hesitation, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because there is no not one who does not do evil at some point. You, you start your life with a propensity, with a, with a, a default place of wanting to rebel. <laughs> and therefore, that's why we see rebellion enter into every life at some point. There's no not one that does not rebel at some point. So God says about our heart, that's our nature. That's the intent. That's our default position. And then he says to us in Deuteronomy, what though does God require of us? Did you see that in Deuteronomy uh, 10 and 30? Yeah, but that God has a requirement. God requires of man. Now, in, I think that's very interesting that he requires it. In other words, just because you have a default button does not let you off the hook for responsibility. Do you, does anybody have a struggle with that concept at all? Or does that actually explain maybe something to you that you didn't? understand prior. There's, there's a lot of um, conversation that goes around in, the, in our Christian circles about accountability before God and, um, you know, wh what did come first? Did the chicken or the eggs sort of kind of come first in relationship with God? And so we have to clarify that God is the initiator and God is, first of all, he created the whole universe. So nothing became, came before God. So God is the all-time initiator in everything. He created us. And as a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, he tells us this, right? In Deuteronomy 10, what is the basis upon which God says of you, I can require of you that you um, do certain things? And what is the foundation that he gives us there, the fundamental? Look in verse, uh, it's in 10, 15, I think, Deuteronomy. Okay, so the fact that he loved us and, okay, 
And, and well, okay, and he's speaking about Israel there. He's chosen that to be his nation. But he said, in other words, that he is the initiator in relationship with us. But it starts out with even, a, even one more point, which is even before that, that who is he? Okay, it's, that tells us that who is God then? And who is God then? If the, if the heavens and the earth belong to him? He's the creator. So because he's your creator and because he loves you and because he pursues you, then he can require of you. Because guess what? Although he, he's created you, he loves you, and he is pursuing you, he is also placed within your, your ability as a human being to make choices. And he has given you that free will choice out of an act of love. Because without freedom of choice, it's not love, right? It's not a, it's not a true relationship if, if you're simply forced into it, correct? So God has free will given you these things, and yet he's also given you opportunities. And he started by initiating it, saying, look, I created you, I love you, and I am pursuing you. And based on that, he says, then I can require of you a response of some kind and hold you accountable to the response that you give. So he says, God requires of man what? To fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. To, to love and serve him. With all your heart. Wow. Wow. That certainly makes a lot of sense when you really break it down to that umph degree, when you really do what Scripture says, meditate on it, right? To parse it out and to peel it down to the fundamentals and to broaden your understanding of it by looking at that bigger definition to say that this is, this is my feelings, my thoughts, my volition, everything about my inner life. And so really interesting to me, though, was this statement right here, inner life right? Because if we're not careful, we can also look at relationship with God and say, it looks like it's a list of do's and don'ts, right? What did you see when you looked? Um, okay, there you go. All right, let's put that one on here. Thank you. To observe God's word for your own good. <laughs> he does give us the warning, doesn't he? He does tell us what he expects, and then he tells us what the, what the response is going to be, that if you choose to love him and if you choose to obey him, then he is going to be there to, to fully support you. But if you don't, then what? In 1 Chronicles 28.9, he says, if you seek God, what will happen? He, he will let you find him. Isn't that an interesting point, that he's going to let you find him? Which shows you, again, his sovereignty over things. But how is it, what is the quality about God that allows him to know who is really seeking him and who is not? How, how many of you had relationships with people who see, appear or at least give the word, the lip service that they're, that they're seeking God, but yet you don't really see their relationship 
demonstrate that they're really seeking God, right? Um, so when God chooses to, for instance, set his spirit upon a person and seal them for the day of redemption, how does he go about doing that? What is he able to do that we can't do? He sees their heart. And not only does he see his heart, according to Hebrews 4, he says he, the, that he, he penetrates soul and marrow, right? And he distinguishes between thoughts and intents of the heart. Yeah. Wow. And so they said it's like the emotions come from the heart, not the mind. That's why all these, all these verses become alive, because when you know that the heart, he knows your heart, because your heart, even though your mind is seeing and observing and stuff, he said a lot of times you're in a space, the way they're explaining it, you know, your heart's supposed to even get it quickly. It gives your brain the sense to fear. It gives your brain the sense to react. And so your heart is really the whole hub of everything. Mm. And so I thought, and I sent you the article, but I thought it was so dynamic because it did bring so much life to all these verses. In a way, I just think I wouldn't go too far that way, though, because the scripture is also really careful to say that, on the other hand, there are things that you are responsible for to observe and to know that then motivates the heart. So it's kind of like this, it's almost like this free will versus sovereignty thing that there's this constant balance and it's two sides of the same coin that result in one one truth you either love God wholly with your heart and you re react and respond in that way or you do not love the Lord and do not walk with the Lord and therefore God rejects you and that is exactly what he says then in first chronicles 28 he says if you seek him he will let you find him but what but what's the opposite yeah, that's right. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. So there's a cause and effect and a consequence and a responsibility. And so in this thing, God requires of man. He has, there is a requirement on our part. There is a requirement on the part of these kings and these prophets. And we saw one prophet who did one thing well and then failed in another. But you see, every single step in our life can have a cause and effect. And God holds us responsible and accountable. And some of us, because we're in bigger positions, those kings and prophets who are in high-profile um, positions are held to higher standard of accountability, higher required um, purity of walk, because they influence so greatly those that follow them. So as we are looking at our kings and our prophets right now as in this journey that we're in so far, what we do see is over and over that God, when a, when a king is doing well, what happens to the nation? They seem to follow in the way and their land prospers. When the king is not doing well as a leader, what tends to happen in the nation? It tends to fall apart. And so, you know, application today, what? <laughs> Find good leaders and follow them, right? Now, honestly, we can't control every leader in our world. And we can't control every leader in our, um, in our, in our nation, the Amer in America. However, there are people that are in the sphere of your little world that you can 
follow or not follow. You, can, you get to choose who is the one that you will follow in their footsteps. Who was it that I just saw something on this? It was on Facebook, I think, and they were saying, it, it, they had made kind of a, a general statement that if you don't hang out with good people, you'll never yourself aspire to goodness or something along those lines. I thought, in a way, that was a good that was a good truth statement. You know, if you want to be the kind of person who obeys God and is a good citizen and so forth, you need to surround yourself with people who live that way, right? Back to again, the com- the, the company you keep forms and helps to, you know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hang out with right people. <laughs> Yay. Okay, so, all right, Mark 12. This one was really interesting. Go into Mark 12 and take a look at that one and tell me what you see in there about the heart, and then we're going to move on from here and go into our kings. Uh, in Mark 12 was the one that you all did. It. Uh, I don't have the reference here. Hold on. I'll have to open my... 33. Four, okay. Yeah, Mark 12, 28 to 34. Okay, so this is the scribe, and Jesus is talking to him, and he says, he asks the question, um, what commandment is the foremost of all? And then Jesus answers him, and what is, he, what is the answer? Okay, so it's that, it's that golden rule, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like unto, unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what I found to be the most interesting part of this particular passage, though, started with um, um, 33 and 34. He goes on to basically repeat this back to the man. And Jesus says, and he, this man had answered how? intelligently now where did where where was the intelligence that he he formulated his answer from what's the source of his intelligence the word of God the source was God himself I think about Solomon who God gave him wisdom the source of his real intelligence was what God gave him the knowledge that God gave him the word that God gave him that's the source of intelligence so if this man had given some other kind of an of a response to him God, would Jesus have said that was an intelligent answer the answer is probably not, right? But in this case, what God did is he affirmed to the man that because he quoted directly from what God had given as a command, he spoke the word of God that this was truth, and God replied, this is, and Jesus replied, this is an intelligent answer. And he said to him then, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Um, so in that, though, he he implies that there's a, a, a will quality going on here, right? That that the desire to obey God, he says, if you do this, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, again, we've defined it. It's the, it's the mind, the will, the soul, the understandings, the volition, right? The I want to. Because here's the, here's the clincher, guys. Even if we want to, will we always obey God? How many examples have we seen so far that there have been people who seem to be walking with God and then they're not, and then they are and then they're not, right? Um, we have many that we, like David, whom we admire greatly, and God considered him a man after his own heart. 
Asa. What did God say about Asa? He was, he wholly was committed to the Lord all his days, all the days of his life, it says in scripture. And yet, what did we see Asa do? He, he pardon? Well, some of those, yeah, and what that's telling you is that he, he, did, he wasn't, it was an impossibility to clear them all out. But the ones within his realm of, of radiation, he took care of. The ones that his fathers had put into place and those which were within his reach. One of them was he removed who? Maka, his mother, who, by the way, was that his mom? Susan, it was his grandmother. Susan and I had a great conversation last week about the identifying markers, and often these texts will say the mother, right? But it's just like saying Father Abraham, but is it really their father? No, it's their ancient father. David, your father David is used in this over and over. Is it their father? No, it's actually their grandfather, 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 great-great-great-grandfather, even in some cases. So when it comes to Maka, it was his great-grand, it was his, his grandmother, and he, and he said of her, he removed her from being the queen mother because why? Yeah, so within the realm of those things which he had control, he removed. He wasn't able to remove all the high places. That's just telling you he wasn't able to do that. But he did remove those within the realm of his area. But what did Asa do that, that made a little tear come to your eye at some point? He started to rely on something other than the Lord. So let's, let's go in and look at that one then now. Yes. Yes. Exactly. It's very easy to, once you have had successes, to kind of sit back on your laurels. We've talked about that one on a few occasions. Now, I'm writing down here on this Mark 12 reference that in here, with this conversation between Jesus and this and this man, is that God, Jesus is acknowledging that there, that the desire to obey God is, is the foundation to really loving God. It starts with a desire in your heart to want to obey. Because no matter how much you want to obey, at some point you're going to mess up along the way. So it's not about your perfection in doing it. It's about your desire in your heart. And the other quality is when you're rebuked, will you repent? That's another quality that's essential. For those who don't, if you belong to God, God can do other things like inflict punishment or, or distresses in your life. He can allow things to come your way to help discipline you, right? Hebrews teaches us that God disciplines those who he loves. Or God can even, for in the extreme cases, like we've looked at Ananias and Sapphira before, he can take their life if their disobedience is so public and so essential at the moment that it's really going to hurt God's kingdom work, then he can actually even take a person's life. Now, he doesn't do that often. Aren't we glad? 
that mostly he disciplines. He tries to discipline us back into right relationship with him. But God has some, some room here for how he works with us, and he works individually with each person. But our relationship with him, according to what Jesus says here in this Mark 12, is that it begins with an uh, I want to. This man says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. So you're to have this understanding in your mind, bow your knee to it, acknowledge it, and have a desire then to do it. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God if you start right there. That's where you start. Yes, except that... Yeah. Yes, we do. Now, Asa is an interesting one, and we're going to, let's talk about him a little bit when we get in, into that one. Let me, do it in the, let me do it in order, though, okay? Hold on to that thought, because what you have to remember about these, these records that are given to us about these kings is they often don't give us every detail of that person's life. What they do is they give us a conclusion statement that God has made a, a proclamation about a person. He did evil or he did good. Or he's blameless, right. The, and the other thing that's really interesting to me is you have to remember the context of these writings is pertaining to Israel, the nation, and how these kings are leading. So God is, look, this is not necessarily a referendum on salvation, although it can, it can certainly give us an indication, but um, that's not the point of the author. The, the author of this is not writing to say this person is saved and this person is not. This author is writing to say who is a good king and who was a bad king. Because these were the leaders of God's nation. And what he is showing us by demonstration is what kingdom life is supposed to be like. And what God expects of kingdom walking. Do we have a kingdom that we're working towards? Or are we all done with kingdoms at this point? Yeah, okay. What kingdom are you looking forward to? The eternal kingdom, right? Being in the eternal kingdom of God. So what, we're, what we might ought to consider in our thinking on this is, as we are observing this, do we know that when we go into the eternal kingdom that we will have a leader that's good? Hallelujah, <laughs> right? And we will certainly have the advantage also that at that time we are going to have a, a glorified body, which means our minds will have been greatly transformed and we will not have that oppression of the flesh and the struggles of sin, right? Um, but there are still principles about living in the kingdom. Do you think that they're going to still apply when we move into the eternal kingdom of God? Are we going to have jobs and have things to do or are we just going to sit around and strum harps all day? I know. It seems rather silly, and yet there's a lot of people who haven't really thought about this much. But, but if everything that we see in the earthly realm that we're living in is a foreshadowing of things that are going to come in the future, if every quality of who Jesus is was foreshadowed and then presented in a reality, and yet was still yet even a further reality that we haven't seen face-to-face -face yet, we walk by faith, but one day we shall see him face-to-face, so can we take the realms that we're looking at here and these kingdom struggles of the, these prophets and kings of Israel and, wa and watching their lives and the things that they're doing, doing and not doing, and what they should do and what they shouldn't have done, and can we learn general principles? And do you think those are going to matter? Are those principles that we need to know for our eternal kingdom living? 
abs- I believe, and absolutely. Why, otherwise, would God want us to know these things? And these are not principles that you and I are going to have to walk by, need to walk by. I believe we will graciously and wonderfully walk by. But what he is showing to us here and now is what kingdom life will be like. And what, what obedience brings for those who love him. So he's giving us opportunity in this life to make a decision where we're going to spend our kingdom life at. We talked about this in our Sunday school class yesterday about the difference. Well, kind of we talked about the difference between Sheol and uh, eventual hell that God is going to eventually cast those into who do what? Who goes to hell eventually? Those who, who did do evil in the sight of the Lord. Those whose heart are not wholly committed to the Lord. If you will seek for God, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Those are, those are just, it sounds cruel and unfair to some people because they don't have a grasp on the reality that relationship with God is a submission of your will and a heart's desire to want to honor him. Why would you ever want someone to live in eternity with you who does not want to be obedient to God, right? Who does not want relationship with God. Why would God want someone like that, right? So God is going through the, the, the hard work for us of showing us kingdom life, the glories of it, the joys of it, the delights of it, and the things that God desires to give to us so graciously. He wants to give us a, an eternal life which is full of joy and love. Um, yeah, it's not exactly the subject matter here, but certainly what, what, what one of the, with Israel, what we saw is he makes a reference in one of the records about the covenant that they enter into, that Asa enters into covenant, and Judah does also. It's very interesting because it makes you remember back to Deuteronomy 28 and 29 when the initial covenant with Israel was established, right, with Moses on Mount Sinai. What was the basic premise to that covenant? Okay. Yeah. I'll curse you. I'll curse you. Right. That there will be blessings and cursings. And uh, Joshua says, today, this day, choose the blessing. He says, I'd rather bless you than curse you. That's my desire. Uh, Timothy, he says, he desires that all uh, come to know him and that none perish. No, not one. So God's desire is for all to come. And yet, is there a truth reality that some don't? So what does that tell you about our relationship with God? Is it, is it God controlling sovereignly over those who do and do not? Or is there free will in this? There is free will. You see it over and over and over and over in Scripture. You can't get around it. There's no way to get around it. You have a free will that God allows for you to choose. But then God goes to extensive measures to reveal himself to you. That you would seek him and find him. And it says in Acts, he... he, he um, that from one man he created all nations, that man would seek him and find him, though he's not far from any one of you. He, you know, he, he, he determines even where you live and at what generation in history you were born. He knows which family members he's put you amongst, what friends he's given you, your, your life around you. And he physically moves you from one place 
in the United States of America to another place somewhere in the world. And he moves you again, and then he moves you again. And he does that. Why? That you would seek God and find him, although he's not far from any one of you. He gives you all your life experiences that you might seek him and find him. He's reaching out. But we're going to rule and reign with him. Yes. So. Now, that's during the thousand-year millennial reign. That's correct. But Um, I'm, yeah, my husband, my husband talks about that. He says, I don't, if, as long as I'm there, I'm content. I'll sweep floors. But you know what? Should we shoot for sweeping floors or should we sweep, shoot for the stars, right? What does God want from us? Does he want us to do our very best or does he want us to just be satisfied with just getting our foot in the door? I think there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 3 that talks about that, 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 the challenge is that in our life, on a daily basis, we make life choices, just as these kings are demonstrating to us, of whether we're going to obey God or not obey God. And the consequences of that, some of them are in this temporal realm, but some of them rely, will also reach into eternity. Now, he doesn't go into that, but the demonstration is there. I mean, the... the illusion or the it alludes to the fact that that there are eternal rewards that are going to be lasting um, because what we see in this life is the shadow and what we'll have in eternity is to come and and if you do a study in the book of Matthew for instance there's a lot of references to rewards in eternity and the things that you're storing up the treasures for heaven so I I do think that what you do here matters and I think that what what we need to do here is whatsoever you do, you do it heartily unto the Lord, knowing that it is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. And those rewards will be given. The one who's faithful, much will be given. Right? And that's not what we're talking about at all. But yes, it's a good point, at least, to bring... Yes, it, it, it is a slip. Well, here's where the semantics matter. What we're, what we're saying is once you're in salvation, not how you get into salvation because that's by grace and, and that's purely by faith, right? You believe God and then it is reckoned to you as righteousness just like it was with Abraham. That's all you have to do. That's why Jesus, that's why I thought it was important to stop here and say that that. Uh, in this Mark one where he says, um, what is it that is, a, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, recognizing that he had answered them well, and he asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, it is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It starts with loving God, which is faith. It's the seed of faith. Now, what does God do with the seed of faith, even if it's as small as a mustard seed? He magnifies it, doesn't it? And what can God do with a mustard seed kind of faith? He can move mountains, right? So it's, that's the salvation quality. But we're not talking about that. And as in fact, when we're looking at these kings, I would have to say on the whole, which area of the word salvation, would, is it justification, sanctification, or glorification that we're really talking about when we're looking at these kings? Sanctification. We're talking about people who are already supposed to be in covenant with God. Salvation of finished work. They are now walking with God. And what are they doing with their walking process? 
that's kind of the bigger picture. Now, you can't really quite break it down that, that specifically because this is not a, a the, the record of the history of the kings is not a record on the subject of salvation. It's a, it's a record of the history of Israel, what they did that either pleased God or did not please God. And the, the end result of it is, because they're all the way down here in history, remember, way at this other end down here, they're either in Babylonian captivity or getting toward the end of that, and they're about to go back onto the land. And what are they supposed to be learning by the record that we're looking at? What not to do ever again, <laughs> and what they should do. So has there been a fairly good uh, balance, though, on the whole, of situations where we see a king doing good, and then God blesses it? And then the king doing bad, and then God rebukes it. Okay, so if you and I have to, if we were to, besides looking at the subject of the heart, if we made a list on God, what kind of qualities are we seeing about God? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lisa. That's right. So what you see over and over again, and that's why we're talking about these years, when he says he's doing it for David and he's doing it for those things, it's because he honors those who seek after him. But that doesn't mean the judgment isn't coming, which is how we can apply to our life. That's a real, that's a, you said that so well, Lisa. Very good. Applaud, applaud. You know, but that this is it because... Because what God is doing in, in this re these records that he's giving to us in, in both Kings and Chronicles is to show us principles of life. And that's why it's so hard to try to narrow it down to pinpoint it to say, this is what he's teaching about. Well, it's, it's that and much more, you know, because you have to look at the, at, at the bigger moral picture that God has and the bigger um, um, what is the right way to say this? But, but God's desire for his kingdom and for his people and have relationship with him. He's demonstrating through these kings and, this, and the kingdom progression what is pleasing to God and what is not. What reaps benefit, what reaps consequence. He's also his Absolutely. Okay, so... Yes. Back to free will again. You have a choice. This is your choice. Which one do you want? To, do you want the blessing or the cursing? Yes. Right. So there's delay sometimes in punishment, and it goes into the next generation. And, and in many ways, quite honestly, if Israel, for instance, Celeste, when you go back to the, the one with uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the splitting then, it all was a consequence of who? Solomon. 
right? So Solomon set the course of action of the way that Israel was going to start behaving as a nation, right? Because what did, think in your mind again of all the things that Solomon did. What did he do? Okay, so he did, he, basically, with the exception of building the temple, which even that, his, his, his work ethics and getting that done were questionable as well, but he did build the, the temple, which honored God, and he established God's name in the land forever. He did that. That was good, and God commended him for that. But beyond that, everything else Solomon did seemed to go in, in contrast or in, against God's stipulated word don't have these kinds of treaties do not marry these kinds of people do not be engaged in this kind of idolatry um pardon do not amass gold don't go back to egypt don't i mean all in everything that going to edom yeah yes and then he went to eat he took land he wasn't supposed to and left land that he was supposed to you know oh, no i don't want that land so he just left the left it to the natives but the lands that god said do not touch that land that is reserved for edom and for their descendants after him what does he do he goes to edom and takes part of that and, and establishes a shipping route down there right so he, it's like he did everything up so therefore because he acted in that way as a king over a nation he demonstrated that to his people what do you think the people are doing what happens when the laws of your, the land that you live in allow promiscuity, allow sin in the eyes of God? And your TV programs start changing and your commercials start, start changing and the way you dress. One of the things that irks my husband more than anything, and I almost shouldn't say this publicly, maybe. Well, maybe I should. I think I will. <laughs> but some of these women come dressed to church on Sunday morning in the most Provo that's a good word, provocative way. My husband said there was, he told me about one that happened just yesterday that it, both he and Kane, who is the police officer here, they stood there and looked at each other, their eyes were bugged out. And this person, it was that overt. So what happens when there is sin allowed in the world and it becomes the dominant factor of exposure to you as a nation? You begin to walk in that way. Even God's people can get sucked into it. Even God's people can start to think that things that are truly ungodly are okay to do. It's okay to live with your boyfriend and show up to church on Sunday morning and say that you're a Christian because the whole world does it, right? So, I mean, that's an extreme example of that, but... but it, it, well, but it's a common one, <laughs> and so it's really sad. It's a common one, and the point is that God in his word is teaching us through this, these lessons here with these men what God expects and what, God men, what men actually did and do, and so by looking this week at these references about the heart on day five, we go back to see where the seat of decision-making has come from is from the inner heart of man, his soul, his mind, his thought, his intent, his volition, his will. And it, is, and it comes down to you individually making a decision, who are you going to obey, God or man? Who are you going to obey, God or your desires, right? Is your flesh going to rule you or is God going to rule you? Who have you bowed your knee to? Who have you deliberated in your mind, made a deliberate decision 
I will honor God? Or have you decided in your mind, you know, everything's gray? Eh. And so God looks at that and he says, look, I'm looking at the, even the intent of your heart. And the one whose heart is wholly committed in following me, even if you aren't able to do it every single day, 100% correct, I am going to wholly support you if you will have a heart's desire. It's the I want to that God is looking for. That's what he's looking for in us. And your faith belongs with an I want to. That's where it begins. Faith begins with I want to love God and honor him. And God will then, thankfully, he gives us his spirit so that we can. Yes. Yes. Oh, goodness. Yes, absolutely. So then we're back to that subject about God. Now, I saw a hand up here before I go on. Yes, I know. Yeah, all oh, the heart ones. And as if that's an excuse for you to just go ahead and do it, right? Yes. And then you see a clear line of demarcation between what God wants and what you want. And it's Yes, exactly. And again, so now it's, again, you're back to exposure. So your king matters. The one you're following matters. The people that you set up on a pedestal for you to admire and to, you know, emulate in your life, that matters. Um, and, part, and partly what we're seeing here is, is it, it starts with a decision. Who are you going to say, I am committed to? And when everyday life's issues come up to you, who are you going to seek for counsel? Who are you going to obey for in your decision making? Is it going to be dictated by your, by your worldly friends and by, by the lusts of your heart? Or is it going to be dictated by you saying, what does God expect? What does God want? That's my first place to go to. Does God want this for me? Does God, is this okay from a, a, a spiritual perspective? Is that my first intent to say, I really want to honor God in this, so I need to pause for a moment. Now, I am, as you, if you guys know me real well, I am, I usually respond first and think later sometimes, you're right. But I can tell you that that has been a discipline for me that God has really, has really grown me in it as the years have gone. And that is before I make any real major decision, I stop and say, what does God want in this? Because even though I may not always do it 100% right, my I want to is there. And that's what God is looking for. He wants your I want to. I want to obey God. I want to be, be wholly committed to him. And if you have that, if your heart is wholly committed to him, doesn't mean you're going to always do it 100% right. Because David didn't. Right? And neither do some of these others. Okay, now, we got just a few minutes. Let's go back and look at these others. I just found out after talking to Margaret that we actually didn't do all of Kings yet. We only did the first part of it. Is that correct? <laughs> See, I did the whole thing again. <laughs> well, oh well. Okay. But let's just start with the first 15 verses of First Kings 15, or the first 24 verses rather than. Um, the, what is your theme 
for what's going on in 1 Kings 15, and let's put up here, 1 to 24. Who is, which kingdom, first of all, is this? These are kings from which kingdom? Judah, that's right. These are, the, these are kings of the south from the kings of Judah. Let's put that up here. Kings of Judah. Yeah, it, we, did, we actually didn't do the homework on, 16, on uh, 1 Kings 15, 1 to 24, right? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Don't. Yeah, I'm just asking you. So, which, but it starts out with Abijam, correct? Then it goes to who? Asa. Okay, so which kingdom is that? Judah, that's the southern kingdom, just so you know that. When you get to verse 25, who's the king that's going to be mentioned there? Nadab and Basha. Now, do you know what kingdom they're from? Israel, from the, from the northern tribes. So, in essence, what you're going to see then is you can see that verses 1 to 24 breaks down to the kings of the south, and then 25 to the end is the kings of the north. So that's a pretty big segment division right there. That's kind of nice. So we break that up. So right now we're just going to be focused on the kings of Judah at this point. We're going to look to see what happened according to that record. In 1 to 8, what do you see uh, as your, your major subject going on in those first eight verses? Abijam. And what did Abijam do? He walked in the sins of his father. So 1 to 8, Abijam. I'm just going to put walked in sin, okay? Sins of his father. Uh, then in 9 to 15, who do we have? Asa, who's the next king. Very interesting. Conclusion about Asa, what did we see? Yeah. His heart wholly devoted to the Lord. Now, that's very interesting. So his father, Abijam, walked in sin, but Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord. Does that tell you any kind of insight about life and, and families and legacies? And Are we automatically doomed because we have parents who are unbelievers? Are we automatically in if we have parents who are believers? No. <laughs> so what, it's, what it teaches you is, you know, I can remember as a young mom especially, and I think it's gotten a little bit better as the years have gone by, but it used to be if a little child was bad, they would go, what's wrong with that? those parents? Aren't they teaching their child, you know, right? How many of you remember that? You always felt you walked around condemned as a parent because your kid did something wrong, right? Um, but is it a parent's fault whether a child knows God or does not know God in a relationship, that they are actually committed to God. Is it my fault if my daughter or my son rejects God? Even though I'm walking with God, I'm faithful to God, I have relationship with God, I am not in control of my children, right? I can have influence over them, I can, and I'm certainly responsible to teach them, but that's a whole different subject. The bottom line is, whether they follow God or do not follow God, whose fault is that? their own heart. It's their own decision, right? Okay, so, which is really interesting because Jeroboam was another good example of that one which we looked at last week. Jeroboam was a man who established the false God system of 
the northern tribes who set up altars. Remember, the man of God went and rebuked him and said these are going to be crushed and so forth. And yet his son had a heart that God said had something good toward God. So again, the, the reverse is true. So you can almost make this as a contrast. 1 to 8 is contrasted with 9 to 15 in the difference of the two hearts, right? Abijam's heart was a heart that walked in sin, and his son, uh, Asa, had a, whole, a heart that was wholly devoted to the Lord, by the way, all the days of his life, okay? And I say that repeatedly because it's going to look like he had a problem at the end of the days of his life, but the scripture makes it clear to us that he actually did walk with the Lord all the days of his life. Now, when you get into um, the points on Asa doing right, what, did, what are the, some of the things that we saw in that chapter that showed or indicated to us by his actions that he did what was right? How hard is that to go against your own family member? Did, anybody, did you guys consider that? Think about this as a practicality. You've got a mom or a grandmother that you're really close to. Could you be that bold that you would, in this case, basically dethrone her? Tough love. Tough love. Oh boy, I'll tell you, it's hard. It, it hurts because... Even though you love that person, you know that when they do wrong, they are doing wrong, right? And so in the case of, of his grandmother, uh, Maka, he, he removed her because of her idolatry. And then what did he do? He actually removed them and burned the ones. The things which, again, were within his realm, he took care of. There were some other things he took care of. What were the others? Didn't you just love that subject of male prostitutes coming up? That went, that's, and you thought we had problems in modern America, right? <laughs> so they had cult prostitutes that were males at that time, and he removed those, and he removed the idols. Um, and then there was a good, another good thing he did in verse 15. He brought in the things, the dedicated things, the things that had been d dedicated to the Lord, brought them into the house of the Lord. I thought that was really cool. So it just showed his acts of worship, in other words. So he went from removing the idols to showing acts of worship to God. And in this regard, then you see that his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord. Now, then interesting here is, and remember, 1 Kings 15, what is, when you got into 2 Chronicles, uh, is it 14, 15, and 16, right? Is that the ones we looked at? Um, when you get into those, what do you see is going on in 15 in comparison? 14, 15, and 16 cover which king? Asa, right? Would you say there's more detail or less detail? There's going to be a lot more detail given to us when we get into the Chronicles, which is why you want to do a timeline and try to fill in uh, the insights on when things happened and, you know, what had already, what transpired when and after. Because in the, the record here in 1 Kings 15, it looks like what he says in 16 and 17 and then uh, 18 to 22 all the way, all the way, to, it almost sounds like it's all happening almost at the same time. They, he just runs it all together in these verbiages. So let's break it down, though, because I actually, once I realized that, it, it, that there was time differences after doing my timeline, I was able to break it down. In 16 and 17, what is the insight that's given to us? 
there had been war, that's right, uh, between Asa and Basha. So in, in the case of our hindsight now, having studied it all through, who's the aggressor in this war that's gone on throughout Asa's king, kingdom time? Basha. So although it seems like when, once we were done with this, that ba although Basha was constantly making aggressive moves towards Asa, for a lot of years, Asa was kind of benign to it. He was kind of, you know, ignoring it, basically. Although it was going on, he knew it was there. He didn't really respond to it until what? What year? Do you remember? His 36th year as king. Then he takes action back in retaliation against Basha. But here in 1 Kings 15, he just says that there had been war between Asa and Basha all their days. Just an aggression that was going on there. Then uh, 18 to 22, I put a sad face here. Then what happened? Yeah. So what did Asa end up doing? He made a treaty with who? The king of Aram. In other words, Syria. What do you think about that? Do you all understand at this point that was a really bad move on Asa's part? It sounds like he's following in the footsteps of what Solomon did, didn't he? Where Solomon began to make treaties of marry women from other places. We see here Asa uh, made a treaty... with king of Aram. Now, for you and I as laymen, or as uh, Gentiles, basically, not knowing that much about, about things, we may not necessarily pick up on that, that that's significant until you do a map. Did you all do a map? This was very interesting. I'm going to show you this in a second here. Okay, then after the statement about them having war, we see in 23 and 24 then an interesting little insight. And it's more like they say it in passing, but it's quite significant actually. What does it tell us there? Yeah, he had disease in his feet, in his old age. It hadn't been there all his life, but only in his old age. Now, for the rest of the story, you now need to go to the Chronicles and fill in more insights on exactly what's going on here, okay? So let's go to 2 Chronicles 14. Oh, let's, let's title it this for, at this point. What is our theme here for this part of it? The good, the bad, and the ugly would be a good one, right? <laughs> Abijam uh, did evil or was not wholly devoted to the Lord, something along that line, right? I'll just put, I'm just going to put, I'll do it this way. Abijam did sin and Asa, heart, wholly devoted to the Lord. Okay. All right. So oh, something in that realm. You, I mean, Abijam was not wholly devoted to the Lord, but Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord. 
You, you could do that. That's a great contrast statement. Or one walked in sin and the other walked in devotion. Or, I mean, however you want to state it, as long as it gives the essence of what happened in there, the contrast of those two points there. And that's what we see here is, the, is verses 1 to 8 is contrasted then with the rest of the chapter. Who Abijam was and who Asa was. Abijam and Asa are the two primary subjects in those first 15 verses. You're going to see basically the same thing is going to happen in the next half of your chapter when you do your observations, which I already did because I guess I didn't realize we weren't supposed to go all the way to the end. But the kings of the north, are going to, you're going to be looking at uh, Nadab and Basha, and you're going to compare what their hearts were like and what, what the uh, chronicle of it or the record of it is stated. Okay? All right, now let's go into Second Chronicles. We'll start in chapter 14. All right, what do we see going on in 14? Who is our, what is our major uh, theme in that particular chapter? Who's the major subject there? Again, it starts with Abijah, and it just shows you the conclusion of his life in verse 1, right? It does give you an important statement, though, in there about something that's going on in the land. And since what we see is there's a cause and effect between the kings and their behaviors and what's going on in the land, and this all goes back to the Deuteronomy promising of blessing and cursing, right? What is the key factor that's stated there in verse 1 that's important to us? He had 10 years of undisturbed time, meaning what? Peace. No war was going on for 10 years. So at least the first 10 years of his time, things, the, uh, the land was undisturbed. So let's see if we can get this on. We have Abijam, then we have Asa, and we have 10 years undisturbed. Yes. Now, we talked about that last week. What, is the, what was the distinguishing difference? What does the A-H on Abijah mean? Who is it related to? The Lord. It's the name of the Lord. So it's saying it, in the name of, if, we, if you do a word study on it, you see that that name means then God is my, the Lord is my God, right? Then when they, they changed it in the other record, they made him Abijam. What was Jam? He was a deity for the sea, right? For the netherworld or the underworld. And so what the chronicler did with that was he, either he deliberately or maybe they, the, in, nationally they had just done it for him because of his bad behavior. They switched the A-H to A-M and gave him a title which says, my, my God is the, the God of the sea, of the netherworld or the underworld. But when you look at the... the uh, the sequence of events, who comes before, who comes after, and the events of what's going on, you see that Abijah and Abijam are the same one. They're the same person. They just, the spelling of the name gets switched slightly. Okay? Okay, we know that Abijam, he walked in sin. I'll just put that on here. Walked in sin. Okay? So we know his heart was not good. He only ruled, he ruled for three years. Right? Now we have Asa. First ten years, it says he walked in peace. And the one thing that we've already noted is that he was wholly devoted to God. 
So I'm going to write this on here. And that's in 1514 of 1 Kings, where it tells us that. That's where we got that information, right? Okay, 1 Kings 15, 14. He was wholly devoted to the Lord all the days of his life. God gave him peace, according to this Chronicles record in 2 Chronicles 14, gave him peace for 10 years after Abijam died. Asa became king. There was 10 years of undisturbed time, no war. Okay, so that's where we're at so far, correct? Then the next thing that occurs on this is what? Let's just look at, let's look at, um, number one, Abijah died. This is really hard to do with our limited time, you guys. Abijah died <laughs> and land undisturbed. Ten years. Yep, no war. That's in verse one. Then in verse two to five of first of Second Chronicles fourteen, what did Asa do? Pardon? Okay, very good. So he removed foreign altars and all the high places, right? And then in six and seven, what did he do? This part was interesting because because we're now in a time of this undisturbed. Uh, time frame, what did he do, use his time for? Okay, Asa fortified. Yeah, in time of peace. I'm going to put it on there as an after statement of my own that's not in the text specifically, but because it has already told us that it was a time of of. Um, Undisturbance, meaning no war, was going on during those ten years. And while, basically, what did he Asa show? What is show? What is showing through to us about him as a leader? Wisdom. He's just being smart. He's saying, "Oh, no war. Great time to stock things up." What does America tend to do when we get a lot of time of peace? We tear down our military and we dismantle things. And in what should we be doing? We should be keeping it strong. Not that you have to build it up to a point of ridiculousness, but you should keep it strong. And, and in this case, what we see Asa is fortifying the cities during his time of peace because he's going to need it at some point, right? All right, so he is, he's in it. He says, but then what, and then what happened? Sure enough, what happened? Eight to ten, we, he has war. War with who? Ethiopia. So now we have war with Ethiopia. Uh, let me find my map again so I get all this down. Before that, he had been totally devoted to the Lord. He had removed idols. Um, he had removed the queen mother. That was because of her idolatry. And as a matter of fact, another thing happened in there about a, a prophet named Azariah. What did Azariah do? In 2 Chronicles 15. Oh, that's following. Whoops. I'm putting that in the wrong place, you guys. Sorry. Yep. No. Are we away from the Queen Mother still? Um, 
No. Yeah, we're, we're hanging on to that for after. We're doing war with Ethiopia first. <laughs> Yeah, so wholly devoted to the Lord all his days is a statement given at the beginning of his life, and there is no war in that time of undisturbance. What he does do is he fortifies cities, and um, he, re he removes idols. So he does do some of that. He removes idols, and he, yes, and all those other details, and he fortifies cities. No, not yet. The queen mother gets removed after the time with the war of Ethiopia. Now, he says that this occurred when? Following those 10 years, correct? War with Ethiopia. What happens when he goes to war with Ethiopia? Yeah, isn't that cool? Asa called to the Lord for help. I love that. He called to Lord for help. Now, this is where we see that reference that we looked at about God's eyes go to and fro looking for those, him whose heart he might wholly support. So it's during, during this time, and he says, the Lord, um, wait a second here, 2 Chronicles 16 says that, not 14, okay, yeah. But it's the same king and it's later. <laughs> okay. This is the part that gets complicated because you have to timeline all this and try to plug it in. Okay, so what happens when then he calls to the Lord for help? God helps him. God helps him. I love it. 12 to 15, which closes out that chapter. The Lord, the Lord routed out the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah and they fled. Now, very, did anybody look at that word routed? Because we don't use that word. Did anybody define that one by chance? It just means he conquered or he subdued them or he subjected them under them. It just means basically they won. You know, they won the war. <laughs> they, won well. they did. And he, lo he did win well because what did he, what happened? And they got lots of plunder, didn't they? So the Lord uh, routed Ethiopia before them. Because why? They had called on the Lord. They called on, on the Lord for help. And so then the Lord answered. I just love that. Beautiful picture. So if you're looking at this historically from the perspective of these Jews who are in their captivity at this point, and you're thinking about what the, the message is in this, what is it? Call on the Lord for help. If you're in time of trouble, call on the Lord. Don't rely on your own understanding. Don't fall back on your knee-jerk reaction of how do I handle a, a bad situation. Uh, don't respond in an ungodly way, but rather first and foremost seek God, and then God will answer. And so he, that's what we see in chapter 14. Now we have chapter 15. Huh? Yeah, what is your theme? What is your theme on that? Okay, Asa sought the Lord. And the Lord. Something along those lines. 
The answer to your theme on that chapter 14 is that Asa sought the Lord and then the Lord routed his enemies before them, right? Boy, is that ever, there's a song, right? Isn't that, there a song that we sing about that, about how the Lord does that for us? All right, chapter 15 now, we're in, again, Asa. We're just moving along the timeline in his life. Asa does what? In 1 to 7, this is where Azariah shows up. That's where I put that in the wrong place. The next thing it says, um, I'm going to look on my timeline. And it's Second Chronicles 15:27. Look in verse 27. Who do we see showing up in this account here? Oh, am I in Second Kings 15:27? Tell me that I might be. Nope. It's got to be in the Chronicles, huh? I'm sorry. Let me see. Let me look on this again. I wrote it on my timeline on this one. Yeah, I've got, oh, two to seven. That's why. <laughs> Sorry. Two to seven, not 27. <laughs> Sorry. Second Chronicles 15, two to seven. We see who's showing up here. Okay. All right. And then he, what does he do here? What does Azariah do? And who is Azariah? He's a prophet of the Lord. It's really interesting because at this point, we see Asa doing really well. His heart is wholly devoted to God. He's, he's whipping the butts of the bad guys. He's getting rid of all the idols, right? He's cleaning up house. He's, he went to war with Ethiopia, and the greatest thing he ever did was turn to God first and say, God, what, how, we need your help. Relying on God for the help in time of trouble. God responded. God gave him the victory. Now we're at the next stage in things, and now the prophet shows up. The prophet says to him what? Very interesting. Do you think that this nation has heard that before? Yes. Uh, yes. So but in essence, what is this prophet doing? He's reminding them of something that they already know about, and that is a previous covenant, right, that Israel had with God. But interesting to me, what is it showing us here with this people at this time in history? What, are they gonna, what is their response to Azariah's prophetic word to them? They renew the covenant. Isn't that interesting? So now in this new generation, which, by the way, the generations before them have been fall, had fallen away and had fallen into idolatry and fallen away out of their fellowship with God, now here comes Asa and his people, and he's the new leader, and he's saying, you know what, you know, we're going to seek God. And then God sends the prophet to him because he's doing this, because he has committed his heart to God, because he has the intent of his heart, the I want to is there. So what does God do? God brings him the prophet. And the prophet then says, let me remind you of what, where this nation was established and upon what principles it was established upon. And he, and he restates, the, in essence, the covenant that God had already made with him as a nation. And now, now Asa and all his people with him do what? They re-enter into this covenant. They re-commit themselves. It's like a recommitment moment, right, as a nation. So Azariah, um, he gives exhortation. And they, they basically re-commit. I'm going to put it that way. 
And they, it's called the covenant of the Lord there, which is interesting because we call it the covenant of the law or the Mosaic covenant, right? All right, so they enter the covenant of the Lord. And then what does he do there? Now the next thing it says is he does what? Now he's going to remove who? His queen mother. So what it basically does is it just shows us, in a, in a, to me in a way, it shows kind of a progression going on here. What do you see? He started by doing what kind of things? Basically removing the idols and so forth. But now what is he doing? He restored the covenant, and then the, the next thing was? Takes care of internal house business. He went from doing the external that are, I quite honestly think are the simpler things when they're not quite as personal in your life, they're not quite as challenging. Have you ever noticed that God, I've certainly seen it in my life in recent times that, that you know, in my pre, earlier years of my life, I was just handling the bigger stuff, the, the, the less challenging things really, the bigger things, the things that were really not quite as directly related to me and my internal relationships. And so if, as if you get those things in order, then the next step is to do what? Get the internal things more in order, the bigger challenges, the harder things to do. So he's now dealing with something that's bigger and harder, wouldn't you say, when he's having to deal with his, with his grandmother, the queen mother who's had a position of authority and prestige. He's going to humiliate her. And he is going to, in some ways, even have a personal in humiliation before the people when he removes his mother for her idol, his grandmother is who it is, for her idolatry. But do you see a progression of orders things going on in this man's life that how God took, he did the smaller things first and then God gives him a bigger challenge and he steps up to the plate and he does it? Isn't that amazing? It's pretty amazing. Isn't it kind of cool to watch a man actually walking in the right direction for a change <laughs> yeah I know so they he recommit they recommit the covenant with God and he removes his, the queen mother because of her idolatry that all took place in what year his 15th year of his reign we see that in second chronicles 1510 yes yes Huge. It's huge. Huge, 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 huge. I know. I know. And I got to tell you, I just, I can so relate to this one in my life. It's just like, it's scary when it gets to be that big of a challenge that you have to start st stepping up to the plate and actually going toe-to-toe -to -toe against family members that you really love, that you respect, that you have a heart for, and yet right is right and wrong is wrong. And you have to call it. Thank you. Yes, it does. Yes. It, it, and it's important that we recognize it because I think that when it happens to us, would you say that a person might question whether or not they're doing the right thing if they're having to go against their own mom or dad or brother or uncle or... I mean, if you're really close to that person, you've always loved them and respected them, and now you're having to basically humiliate them by calling them on the carpet. And 
Um, you may or may not ever have this happen in your life, but if you do, I think you'll understand this story a lot better because it's, it's a very hurtful thing to have to do to say what you're doing is wrong, it's sin, and to call them on it, it requires a great deal of uh, faithfulness to God over your family. What, there's a scripture in the New Testament that talks about that, right? That you must choose me over mother and father, right? And if you don't, then you're what? You're not worthy of me. That's a scary, hard thing to do when it becomes you and your family. And, it, and this man did it. Wow. I mean, I'm impressed. This is pretty, pretty big, really, on his part. It's not like he's just a king and he's just wielding his authority like earlier he was, just taking care of the cult prostitutes and the, and the idols and the, you know, clearing things away and doing things that he could. But it was more like authoritative, you know, just sort of. But when it starts becoming personal, then you can really see a man's heart. And you can say, who are they really committed to? And so Azariah, he has given an exhortation. They recommitted themselves into this covenant, and then he turns around and he removes the queen mother because of her idolatry. Wow. Whew. All right, now, I've got to get done with this. Oh, boy, you guys. Let me just, can I just talk you through the last part of this timeline? The next thing we see is in 2 Chronicles 16, because we're not going to have time to get into chapter 16, or and we're, I've got to go. Um, 2 Chronicles 16, 7 says that Asa made then a treaty with who? Aram, the king of Aram. Now, wait a minute. Didn't this guy just do a really profound, deep heart commitment thing before God? And then what happens here? Why do you think he does this at this point? Is there any clues in this storyline given to us about what, what might have happened concerning this, this situation with the kings of the north? Is there anything in here that tells us what might be going on here? How about if we go back here? Um, That's in Jeroboam's kingdom, right, but with Asa. Why would Asa make... No, I'm asking you about Asa. The next thing in the timeline of Asa is he, goes, he ends up going to war with the north. Why does Asa then go to Aram? I'm going to draw you a little map. Okay, we've got... We've got I'm just, this is a really a bad map, you guys, but it's going to give you a basic idea. Up here we have Aram, which is Syria basically, today. Here we have the northern tri kingdom, right? And then we have the southern kingdom down here, or Judah, otherwise Israel. We have right on here on the border that place that's called uh, Basra, what's it? Rama. Yeah, Ra Rama. R-A-M-A-H was the name of that city, right? Just below it is Jerusalem. Not very far. There's just a few miles from one another. Up here is the city of Dan that's talked about. 
and in the center of here is the place where it talks about him, uh, uh, the king of the north having his, his seat of authorities, where he's, his kingdom was established, started with a T, I can't remember. Tirza, that's right. T-I-R-Z-A-H, right? That was that city. That's like in the, right in the middle of his kingdom, basically. So that kind of gives you, it's definitely not proportional, but it gives you the idea, right? So why does the king of Judah make a, a treaty with Aram? And by the way, in order for Aram to make treaty with him, what did he have to do first? Well, first of all, yeah, he bribes him in essence, right? He sends a bribe up to him, sends him all the money that he's got in his treasuries and says, make a treaty with me. But in order to make a treaty with him, what did the king of Aram have to do first? Yeah, he had to break a treaty. He had to break his treaty that he already had with the king of the north. So he bribes him to break a treaty, to break a covenant. That, that's a big issue, right? Okay, so he says, break this treaty with him. And come into alliance with me. And he does so. And then when he did this, what happens? Yeah. So because Basha has been down here fortifying Rama, where is Rama? Right on the border between these two nations, between the north and the south. And it's just a few miles from Jerusalem. Not that far, Right. So what has happened here, if you go back to uh, 1 Kings 15, it says there had been war between Basha and Asa all their days. In other words, this king of the north had an alliance with Aram. He's got a huge amount of power, right? And he has been fortifying Ramah. What do you think that's saying to the king who's living in Jerusalem just miles from that? Right? So, so he has to break this treaty. He makes a king with a ram. And what does that then do to Israel? It boxes him in. So now he's got him doing what? What happens to Basha then? Basha is going to hightail it back to Tirzah, where he is from. And then what's he going to do? He's going to take all of the things from the, this town, and he's going to build up two other major cities that gives him a protection between himself and his enemy at the north, which is the northern kingdom. Very interesting insight there, huh? So when does, when does he do that? It's down here. It's in the 36th year. But in order to do that, Asa makes a treaty with the king of Aram. Bad boy. Bad boy. And... Then the next thing we see is in his 39th year, what has happened to his feet? His feet are diseased. Yeah. It's very interesting, the progression of that. So what we do see then is that the, in the end of it, what has God done to Basha regarding his not trusting the Lord anymore, instead making an alliance with the king of Aram? He, he sends a disease on his feet. And ignoring God, not even, not, even, not even seeking the Lord. He sought the Lord before, but now he doesn't seek him. The, as a, as a riot, there's another prophet that comes in here. I didn't write him down, but he comes in and rebukes him. What does he do when the prophet rebukes him? He, yeah, he tries to do him in, and he puts him in prison. Awesome. 
<laughs> so what does that tell you? Even though, even though we see that he did all that, what, what do we know is true about Asa? He still loved the Lord. He, he was felt fit. Now, what the scripture doesn't do is go back and explain to us at what point does he repent and how does that all occur. It just shows us what happened.